last month, I was in Portland for school and meeting up with some friends, and we were out to lunch one afternoon, and we're having this time together, and one of my friends, Trevor, he's, he's telling me about this time when his, at the time, only child, about two years old, a little daughter, was hanging out in the living room. He's sitting there on the couch, and as we're at lunch, he's telling me that he's sitting there kind of trying to study, trying to prepare. He's a pastor for an upcoming sermon, and his little two-year-old's off to the corner playing with her toys, but then she kind of totters over to the other side of the living room where there's, remember those like old CD racks that had the CDs that kind of all went up vertically? She approaches to the, the CD area, and she kind of looks at the CDs, looks back at her dad. Dad eyeballs her. She's about to reach, and dad goes, no, no, you better not. Don't touch those. Don't do it. And then guess what happens? They all come tumble down, exactly. She grabs it. And so dad gets up, picks her, moves her back over to the other side of the living room, sets her down and goes, sweetie, you got to stay over here. This is where your toys are at. You, know, just, you can't just grab everything that looks good like in your own eyes. But a few moments later, kind of toddling back over, she stops, looks at the CDs, looks back at dad, back at the CDs, looks back at dad, and then round two. They all come tumbling down. You know, Dad and, and Trevor, he's working on, like, the parenting. He's trying to be patient. He's just, you know, deep breaths, all those things that the parenting books teach you, and just really taking his time with this. And so gives her another chance, brings her back to the, the other toys. But then a few moments later, third time, totters over. And this time, it's okay. If you do it again, sweetie, you're going to go on timeout. And he's trying to be really patient. She hobbles over there. She looks at her. He looks at back and forth. They go, CDs, Dad, back and forth. And then third time's the charm, come tumbling down, and then off she goes into timeout. And as my friend Trevor's telling the story, our other friend Jeff's sitting there right there with us at lunch, and he has four kids. And he tells me, he's telling us, he's like, oh yeah, this exact same thing happened to me the other day. I mean, my two-year-old son, he's there in the living room, we have this old collection of VHSs, and they're all kind of on this shelf that's semi-kind of high, and we don't really like them bringing them down. And so my two-year-old son, Jeff says, is walking over to the VHSs, and he looks at me, I look at him, and then I have to go run to the other room because I have three other kids to take care of. So I have no idea what happened. <laughs> Such is life, right? Controlled chaos. And I share that story in part because there's something about us as even at a very young age, as young little humans, that when we see something we want, that looks good for us, we want to take it. We want it for ourselves. And this desire, this kind of temptation, if you will, is something that we're, we all have. We all have this, this thing within us that we, we understand that perhaps this isn't right, but because we want it so badly, we'll do it instead. We'll, we'll take and we'll, we'll have for ourselves. But hopefully... Over time, as we grow and mature and become more like Jesus, we learn to kind of temper those sort of inklings, those desires to always want something that looks good for us to take and grab. And hopefully we mature and we understand that we can't always get what we want. We can't always just see something that looks good for us and take and grab. Because what ends up happening, if you live your life in this way, where you just kind of do what feels good, you see something you want, you take it. You just follow that pattern into adulthood over and over and over again. Your life will completely fall apart. You will wreck your life and the relationships that are closest to you. And ironically, this morning, what I want to do today is I want to actually 
teach you how to mess up your life in the biggest way possible. I actually want to teach you what it will look like to just follow that desire over and over and over again. If it, see, if it looks good to you, if it feels good to you, just go for it. And marvelously, royally mess up your entire life this afternoon. So I'm going to give you the steps to do that. We're in church, right? Is that okay? Can we do that? If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel 11. Because as we turn to 2 Samuel 11, what we're going to see is this infamous story of David, who in a matter of just a few hours is going to royally mess up his entire life. 2 Samuel 11. And the first step to just completely make your life a complete disaster, to just throw everything to the wayside, to just, again, mess up everything and all your relationships, the very first thing you need to do is ignore your responsibilities. Just ignore the things that you're supposed to do. Shove those off to the side, not answer any work emails, sit back in your lazy chair, lie about being sick and just take all the vacation you want. Like just, just ignore all your responsibilities. Look how David does it in the text here, starting in verse one of chapter 11. In the spring of that year, or of, of the year, the, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house when he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. You know, we're diving into this infamous story of David and Bathsheba. But notice what the text tells us. The text is giving us all the context we need for what's about to happen. Notice, the text says in verse 1, this is in the springtime, the time when, quote, the kings go out to battle. This is the narrator's, the author's way of kind of giving us hint, hint, dear reader. This is what the time, this is when the kings are supposed to be leading their armies, leading their people out into battle. This is the, the time of year for this to happen. But David... The text says what? He remained. When David, the king, is supposed to be leading his armies, leading the people out into battle, David is remaining back at home doing his own thing. And in fact, the text goes on to say, quote, David sent Joab. This is going to be the first of 11 different times in this chapter alone where we get the idea of sent attached to David. David's going to send, going to send, going to send, over and over and over again. And the picture we're meant to see, David reclining on his couch, giving these orders, sending people to do the responsibility, the things that he is supposed to do in this moment. Instead of fighting out in battle, David is just sending people to do his work. David remained instead of actually going out to fight the battle. But then the text was on in verse 2 and says, late one afternoon. David's late one afternoon, he's the text that describes that he's on top of the roof. So just, you have to picture, they're not like the kind of the A-frame kind of roofs that we have, but a flat roof in that culture. And David's up on top of the roof, and at one late afternoon, he looks over and he sees, somehow, this woman Bathsheba bathing. Now, at this point in the story, we need to touch on this. 
Because at this point, many people might want to begin to shift some of the blame, some of the responsibility onto this woman Bathsheba. Again, there's very smart people who want to do this, but I just want to push back here because this is really important. Nowhere in this chapter and in the following chapter, because the stories are connected, does the author ever put the blame on Bathsheba? Not once. It's David who's on the roof. The text never says Bathsheba is on the roof. The text says Bathsheba is the one, yes, taking a bath. Now, a couple things that potentially might be happening here. If she's out in public taking a bath, more than likely, she's still appropriately covering herself. Just something that would have been common in that culture, to take a public bath. And if you keep reading on, the text also gives us this kind of parenthetical detail that she was bathing herself because of she, was being, she wanted to be ritually pure. Now, why is that important? Well, for this reason. It's because Bathsheba, the narrator is saying, is actually the one who's being responsible following the Torah. She's the one who's actually following the scriptures at this point. Meanwhile, David, who's on his roof, is doing the exact opposite of following the scriptures. He's doing the exact opposite of what Deuteronomy 17, the kings were supposed to do. Deuteronomy 17, there's this little paragraph in there that describes the responsibility of the king. And the responsibility, number one, of the king was to write and copy and meditate on the scriptures over and over and over again. And if David were doing that, he would have obviously come across the Ten Commandments, which say what? You shall not covet your neighbor's what? Wife. This is like literally his neighbor's wife. Not like metaphorical neighbor, right? We always make these like metaphorical, like love your neighbor. Like what if that actually meant like love your like literal neighbor? And in this instance, David is coveting his literal neighbor's wife. He's not being responsible, not only to his responsibility, he's not being responsible to the text itself. And the point here is that the moment we begin to shift and put the responsibility back on Bathsheba, I think we're missing the point of the story. Because by the end of this story, the end of chapter 11 in particular, the last line of chapter 11 says this, the thing that David did was evil in the sight of God. And when Nathan comes in chapter 12, Nathan rebukes David, not Bathsheba. Why? Because it's David who's the one who's ignoring his responsibility. It's David who's the one who's not being consistent with what he's been called to do as king. And it brings David to this point where Old Testament commentator Robert Alter says that he has a, quote, dangerous amount of leisure. Have you ever had those moments, too much time on your hands? What happens? You start going, doing things, looking at things, hanging out in places you're probably not supposed to. There's a gift that leisure offers, for sure. But the enemy always wants to take God's gifts and twist them and pervert them. And so David, as he's relaxing on his couch, has this dangerous amount of leisure, is ignoring his responsibilities, and he's making me think and ask these questions, what about us? What about us in our sort of everyday life? What about us in like the very simple responsibility that I would say we have as Christians to be students of God's word? Part of, I think, where David's downfall begins is him not adhering to what was 
prescribed for him as the king in Deuteronomy 17, to know the scriptures in a way where it wasn't just something he knew intellectually, but something he lived out practically. Where now the, the commandment, do not covet your neighbor's wife, is just something theoretical to him. It's not actually something inter- internalized. And that lack of responsibility of perhaps being engaged with the, with the word of God to a deep, powerful way is beginning to lead to his downfall. And the convenience that David is experiencing now, shirking his responsibility, is going to lead to compromise as the story progresses. We need to be careful of this. How convenience can often lead to compromise. So, if you want to royally mess up your life, if you want to royally just kind of throw everything to the wayside, ignore your responsibility, step number one. Step number two, if you're really looking forward this afternoon to just messing it all up, just throw the whole thing away. The, if, if level one is ignore your responsibility, to get to like, you know, level 10, follow your heart. Follow your heart. Just do what feels good. Just determine what is good in your own eyes. You be the one, like live your truth. Do what feels good. If it seems good to you, if it, you have the desire for it, don't ask anyone's opinion. I mean, don't even check the scriptures. Just do what feels good. It's your life. It's your body. It's your everything. You're the captain of your own soul. Do what feels good. And you will be on a path to ruining your life and the life of the people around you. Look what David says, or look what the text says about David. Verse 2 again. David saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, just real briefly here. The text does say she came to him. What other choice does Bathsheba have, right? There's a brilliant article on Christianity that just came out this past week called Blame David, Not Bathsheba. So go ahead and check that out if you're interested more in that. But notice how the text says he lay with her. The text is putting the emphasis, the blame, on David. But this is what I want you to notice. David is following his own desire at this point. What seems good to David is that he would covet his neighbor's wife and take her for himself. Now, pay attention to these verbs, the the words highlighted in yellow here. David sees what is good in his own eyes. A woman who is, quote, very beautiful. Now, Now, by the way, there's about eight different words in Hebrew that can be translated as beautiful. This isn't really one of them. The word here is the same word for good, tov. Here's the pattern we have. David sees what is good in his eyes and takes this thing that is good in his eyes for himself. Have we seen that before in the text? I want to go all the way back to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve in the garden, they see with their eyes that the fruit looks good to them and they take it for themselves. Up until that point in the Genesis story, God has been the one that determines what is good. God said it was good. It was good. It was good. Every day of creation. God is the one who determines what is good and not good. The very first time in the Bible when humans decide to define good for themselves is Genesis 3. And what does that lead to? Disaster and sin. It leads to shame, actually, in Genesis 3. And on top of that, get this, 
So David is one of two characters that get like the most airtime, if you will, in all the Old Testament. David and Abraham. And both of them have this same pattern in their lives where they see something that's good and they take for themselves to satisfy and gratify their own flesh, their own heart, their own desires. You go back to the Abraham story. Genesis 16, right after, I mean right after God said, I will bless you, make your descendants as numerous as the stars, so much that you cannot even count them. What does Abraham and Sarah do? They see with their eyes that their slave, their servant, Hagar, would be good. And the text even says that they abuse her and take her for Abraham's own gratification, to fulfill the plan in his own way. Think about this. The Bible is one of the most honest texts we ever have. These are the, quote, heroes of the faith, right? Like, be like David, man after God's own heart. Be like Abraham, a man of faith. But they both have this pattern of seeing what is good in their own eyes, taking for themselves, and look at the colossal damage that leaves in the wake. Relationships, family, marriages. It does not go well when humans define good for themselves, follow their own heart, and take for themselves. In fact, with Abraham in particular, taking and abusing Hagar, which, by the way, Hagar is the Hebrew word for immigrant. Here you have a story of one of God's quote-unquote heroes abusing the foreigner. And before Pharaoh would abuse Egyptian or Hebrew slaves, Hebrew, Abraham the Hebrew is abusing his Egyptian slave. And with David, David sees this woman Bathsheba who's tov, who's good. And the name Bathsheba, friends, means one who's fully a daughter. This is what happens when we give in to our own desires, when we just live from this place of what feels good is automatically right. David has taken someone who is fully someone's, do- fully someone's daughter and has reduced her to an object for his own gratification. This is the honest condition of the human heart. And even in the midst of this, as David is, is going after his own desire, he's doing what feels good, he's seeing what is good in his own eyes, he actually, by the grace of God, has this kind of moment where there's this subtle warning that's given to him. Look at verse three. When David's curious, someone comes back to David and says this, is this not Bathsheba, someone's full daughter, the daughter of Eliam, the husband of who? Uriah the Hittite. This is like the moment where, where if you're the servant who's coming to bring David this message, you're like, you're kind of having to like tiptoe around the king a little bit. Because when someone who is full of power sets their mind to something to the point where they're going to go headstrong no matter what, for your own safety, it's probably kind of best to be a little careful, right? And so this servant in verse 3 is saying, David, hint, hint. This is Bathsheba, you know, the daughter of Eliam, the husband of Uriah the Hittite. Like, you know who this is. You know her. You know their family. These are people you have served with in battle. 
you follow all the textual details, Eliam and Uriah, there's connection that David has with these people. This is not someone you just happened to meet yesterday. This is someone who's more or less a family friend, David. Do you not know? But again, this is what happens when someone is so blinded to what is actually good and defines good for themselves. They will go against any sort of hint, any sort of accountability, any sort of correction to just satisfy and follow their own heart. Because, friends, this is part of the human condition. We have the temptation to what we see and what we want and just want to fulfill. I mean, just go to the grocery store, right? You go in there for, like, vegetables and carrots and apples. The other day, this this was me. I'm, like, trying to get, like, some bananas and fruit. And you walk into Andronico's, and, like, right off to the left is that, like, end cap of, like, the Marianne's ice cream sandwiches. (laughs) And those seem really good, Right? And every time, what ends up happening? Because it seems good to me. That's what we get, what I get, at least. But you extrapolate that further into more serious things. And you live your life in this posture of what you see and you define that to be good for yourself. You become the own arbiter of good and evil it will lead to disaster in your life. It does for David. So, if you're keeping track at home, if you want to ruin your life, ignore your responsibilities, just put them off to the side, follow your own heart, do what feels good, and then number three on top of that, try to cover it up. Just pretend like it never happened, never confess, and cover it up. Look at what David does here in the story here. Verse six. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Again, here's David, has no clue how the battle is actually happening. He's just at home, ignoring his responsibility again. Then David, verse 8, said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet, which is very like subtle but not subtle language of clean yourself up and Go be with your wife. Because at this point in the story, Bathsheba has come back to David and says, David, I'm pregnant. We slept together, and now I'm pregnant. And David has to like, oh, now I'm in trouble. People are going to know. People are going to know what I did with my neighbor's wife. And so instead of David in that moment confessing, acknowledging the wrong that he has done, he devises a plan to begin to cover this up. Uriah, you go back home to your wife, sleep with her, and you know what? It's been a few days, it won't matter. People won't know that the baby was actually from me. We'll be good. Just cover it up, pretend like it never happened. But notice, and Uriah went out from the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. What's going to end up happening, Uriah doesn't go with David's plan. Uriah has more character than David the king. Uriah the Hittite, hint, hint, a foreigner, has more character than the Israelite king, King David. And this, friends, is going to really annoy David. And this is what happens when someone is living in unrepentant sin. People who live with character become very annoying very fast. 
Verse 9, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come home from a journey? Why do you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel of Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? Notice the nobility of, jo- of Uriah here. I'm not just going to shirk my responsibility, David. I'm going to do the right thing. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And keep reading with me here. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, and David made him drunk. So if you're, again, keeping track at home, this is not, this is like attempt number two, if not three, of David trying to cover this up. The first plan, David, David says to Uriah, go wash your feet, clean yourself up, go sleep with your wife. Cover up number two is, okay, that didn't work. We got to get you drunk, so then you can go sleep with your wife. And even as Uriah drinks, he has more character and sense than David who's sober. The irony is thick. Notice what happens, though. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah, again, this is David sending. He's just not having any responsibility. Set Uriah in the front of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. How confused and blinded is David at this moment. He's at this place where it seems good to him to not only commit adultery, but attempt not once, not twice, but three times to cover this up. Oh, no one will know the difference. Uriah is the one fighting battles anyway. We can just chalk it up to being an accident. We can just count him as a faithful casualty for the cause of God. No one will know the difference. But by the end of the story, it's clear. David has royally messed up his life. To the point where I mentioned this earlier, the last line of this chapter says the thing that the Lord did, quote, displeased. The the thing that David did, quote, sorry, displeased the Lord. And literally that, that phrase there is that the thing that David did in the sight of God, it was evil. David has said that this is a good thing to do, but in God's eyes, no, this thing is completely evil. Friends, this is, this is a very honest and sobering story. I mean, on one level, yes, you can talk about all day long, this is how to mess your life up. But friends, obviously, this is not what we want to be doing. This is not the kind of life we want to be living. This is not the pattern that God has for us. I mean, at the same time, you can really think about this. This happens all within a span, really, of a a few hours, if not a few days. And all of the success that David has had up until this moment, from here on out, David's life is on a downhill trajectory in so many ways. His marriage, his family, his kids, all will suffer because of this moment. 
And it's at this point, though, in a passage like this, we might begin to go, well, maybe we can cover behind this passage, if you will. How do we find cover in a passage like this? Well, I think there's kind of two ways that are problematic, like how we might kind of excuse or cover up, if you will. And the first one is simply to just excuse what David did with the lines or the thinking of, you know what? David was forgiven. God's grace covered David. And we can use this story as, yes, David did something wrong, but cover behind, you know what? God still used him. He's still like one of the people who wrote like most of the Psalms. He's like one of the heroes of the Old Testament. And this passage can become a cover to just excuse things in our own life. God will forgive me anyway. God can still work through flawed people. And while that is true, is that honestly dealing with the reality of brokenness and sin that this passage is offering? And the second way we can kind of cover behind this passage is instead of just going to excuse ourselves, we can just be under the cover, if you will, of accusation. The cover of accusation meaning that we're just going to live in this place of dwelling upon the things that we've done in our past and not really experiencing the love and forgiveness that God has for us. See, friends, the enemy would have you rummage around in the garbage can of sins long forgiven and covered and just sit in that shame and that guilt. But what is the way forward? Instead of covering it up, instead of just hiding behind accusations and guilt and shame, what is the way forward for us? And my friends, I would suggest to you it's, it's, it's this. Obviously Jesus, for sure. But specifically and in particular, confession. David had opportunities and moments to confess instead of cover. Take a look at this passage from the book of James. James says this, therefore, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, that you may be healed. Think about that for a moment. Instead of covering it up, confess. Speak the truth about what happened. Confess your sins to, notice what it says, to one another. Why can't I just confess to God? Why can't I just pray privately to God and confess to him? Why do I need another human being involved? Sometimes that's too easy. There's something about actually confessing to someone you know and trust and love. The question becomes, who in your life do you confess your sins to? Who in your life that you have that you can confess your sins to? And then look what it says. Pray for one another. Doesn't say shame one another. Doesn't say guilt one another. It doesn't even say give advice to one another, though there is a place for that. It simply says pray for one another that you may be healed. How beautiful is that? The simplicity and the beauty of that. That, friends, we have the opportunity and the privilege to live in the light, 
to, to, to not hide behind the cover-up, to not hide behind the guilt and the shame, to not just dwell on these things from our past, the things that we, yes, have done wrong, the things that, yes, have led us astray. But the beauty that the gospel offers is that we have an opportunity and the privilege to come before him and to one another to confess these things, to speak openly about them, and to pray for one another that we might be healed. David himself would later write in Psalm 32, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. And we think we have it on the screen here. And whose sins are what? Covered. David tried to cover up his own sin. David tried to to cover up what he did. But David would later recognize, David would later realize as he writes this prayer of confession Blessed is the man whose sins are covered, who are covered. And Paul later in Romans chapter 4 would quote this exact same verse in Romans 4 and apply this and say, church in Rome, this is only because of Jesus. Jesus is the one who covers our sins. Jesus is the one who goes to the cross, takes on all our guilt and shame and all the things we've done wrong and says, you are forgiven. You're welcome." You're you're accepted. That blessed is the man or woman whose sins are covered, not because you're trying to cover it up, not because you're trying to pretend like you're a good Christian. Really, there's stuff to be confessed and spoken and shared with one another in confidence and in love and in safety. But blessed is the man whose sins are covered. So friends, as the worship team comes up, so we transition into a time of worship through singing. Think about what we've gone through here. And we've tried to articulate like what it looks like to just totally, royally mess up your life. Ignore your responsibility. Sit in your lazy boy chair all day long. Follow your own heart. Do what feels good to you. Live a life based on your own gratifications, your own desires, and then on top, to top it all off, icing on the cake, Cover it up. Pretend like you're good when there's all these issues underlying on the surface. So this afternoon, friends, there's your practical everyday life stuff. Just kidding. But seriously, though, what does this really mean for us today? What does this mean for you and I? In our lives. And I would say this for those of you who do not know Jesus, for those of you who have yet to experience the loving, gracious forgiveness of the Creator of the universe, the invitation is to turn and to recognize and to realize for the very first time that no matter what you've done or haven't done, no matter what you've said or not said, the grace of God covers and forgives you just as you are. And for those of you who do identify as a Christian, who do identify as a follower of Jesus. The invitation for you and for me is to not live lives where we're pretending that we're perfect or we have it all together, but to live openly and honestly, recognizing that we all fall short and that his love, Jesus' love, covers a multitude of sins. Father, we thank you for, we thank you for your love, 
and your goodness to us. We thank you that despite all of the ways we might fall short, that we do fall short, God, that you are constant and never changing. So God, I pray that for each of us here right now, that by the power of your spirit, you would just gently remind us of areas in, your, in our lives where we have gone astray, where we have turned from you and gone after our own heart, our own desires, what we think is good in our own eyes. God, would you steer us and correct us? And would you help us to trust that as we turn to you and to one another, that there is freedom, there is healing, and there is a whole new way to live. So God, I pray for each person here that we would no longer be in the bondage of sin, but we would experience the true freedom that comes from life with you. God, set us free from patterns and ideas and behaviors that don't align with your vision of reality, that don't align with the truth of scripture. God, show us where we're off so that we might know your love and forgiveness and life with you. Father, we love you. We thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Stand and worship Jesus together.